You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Cindy McCain joins the Post to discuss her debut memoir, Stronger, Courage, Hope, and Humor in My Life with John McCain. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Karen Tumulty. I'm a columnist here at the Washington Post, and I cover politics. I want to thank you for joining us here at Washington Post Live where our guest today is Cindy McCain, the wife of the late Senator John McCain and his partner through his entire career, Uh, also the author of a brand new book, Stronger, Courage, Hope, and Humor in My Life with John McCain. Welcome, Mrs. McCain. Thank you, thanks very much. First of all, if can I just say how riveting I found this book, how how raw and how candid it was, and to just congratulate you on it. But but why did you decide to write a book? Why did you decide to write this book? And why did you decide to write it now? Uh, you know, the book the book came about really by uh, you know I was like all of us I was home quarantined, you know, those things. I've been thinking about writing a story about my life with him, but it really came to play because I was home alone up at our ranch. Uh, and it be, that's, the, as you know, the place where my husband passed away. And so it became very cathartic for me. I was, I was still grieving and grieving very heavily because I was alone up there. And, and, and as it progressed through the, that particular time, I just started putting things together and working with someone uh, to really put the story down on paper. And I'm so glad I did because it was very cathartic for me, as I said, and it was also something I hope people enjoy and learn from because I wrote it because my life is is really no different than any other woman's life in that there she is, you know, troubles and difficulties and, and the pace that life brings you. And I, I hope that people can learn from it at least or maybe gain help from it as well. Well, you have gone just right to what struck me about this book. And that is, I think my perception of Cindy McCain, a lot of us first became aware of you on the 2000 presidential campaign when your husband is running for the Republican nomination. And I just looked at you and thought, this woman is perfect. She is perfectly dressed. She is perfectly composed. She is perfectly self-assured. And I was struck by how often the word perfect shows up in this book, but how perfection to you was was almost a torment. Uh, and that, you know, your your need to sort of feel this to to be perfect really drove a lot of the challenges of your life. Or am, am I reading this right? You're exactly right. <laughs> You're exactly right. You are you are indeed true. Uh, that was things that were self-inflicted on my part as well. Uh, there was a drive to be perfect. And in the early days in Washington for a political spouse, uh, it was kind of expected of you. Uh, you were to, to look perfect, be perfect, but also keep your mouth shut. And I'm not complaining about any of that. I've had a golden life with my husband. And so this is not, not beefing about what occurred to me early on. But it was something that I realized that for women, not just me, but other women around the country, 
you were expected to work, to raise your children, to have a beautiful home, to entertain, to do all the things you do and do it perfectly. Nobody's perfect and nobody can do all of that. And what I learned through this book and what I hope other people see in it is that I made mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes and I learned from them. And probably the biggest lesson for me was I learned it's okay to be imperfect. It's okay to make mistakes as long as you learn from it. But it was a real process and a real journey for me to do that. And you write very movingly about your early days in Washington, um, how, how you really didn't fit in. You didn't particularly, you were a young woman from Arizona. You didn't like the city, you didn't like the rats, you didn't like the weather, you didn't feel part of the kind of clubby women spouses of, of people on Capitol Hill because you were younger than they were, you were viewed with a little bit of suspicion as a second wife. But you write about one person who very early on recognizes your struggles and reaches out to you because she herself had been, in your words, not one, mine at one point, the new blonde in Washington. Can you talk, can you talk about your friendship with Jill Biden, who is now our first lady and how it really grew out of those difficult early days for you? Well, Jill and Joe were the first uh, Senate couple that I ever met. And uh, they were uh, they were so such lovely people. They still are. But that particular time, they were very open and very very lovely to me. Uh, being a new, I mean, because they had known John prior to that. But I'm, there's a little tidbit in there. It was actually Jill who introduced John and I at a party, and Jill made sure John met me. And it was the rest was history. But when we arrived in Washington, it was difficult for me because I was the outsider and I was the 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 person that was that was viewed upon as in with skepticism. And it was really Jill that that enlightened me and really made me understand how Washington uh, Washington is what it is. And the best thing to do is many times use a little humor. Uh, be uh, be understanding that it's not going to be a perfect life. And more importantly, uh, enjoy what you can because you know there's many many things about being able to come to Washington and have a front row seat to history uh, all too often many many times during the year so it, it was I it so enjoyed our younger friendship and I so enjoyed the opportunity to be able to call them friends and I'm honored by by their continued support of me even after John has passed um, I, I, I also went back, I, I did an interview with you that in 2007 that you would have absolutely no way of remembering, but I will never forget. I was working on a cover story for Time Magazine on the spouses of the candidates who were getting into the 2008 presidential race, who at that time included a very unconventional one named, named Bill Clinton. But you said to me at that point, you said, as much as it may sound a little archaic, I think the American voter wants a traditional situation. In other words, I don't believe they want a spouse who is involved in day-to-day -day politics. And I'm not criticizing any former administration. I'm just telling you what people told me. Of course, this is ironic because you have just engineered a 
badly needed shakeup in uh, your husband's presidential campaign. But can you talk a little bit about these expectations? And have they, in the, what is it, 14 years since 2007 changed? Or do people still want the spouse to be there in a mold they sort of recognize? Well, I, I first of all, I think things have changed drastically since, and I'm happy to say, it, you know, it's a whole new world now, and that's in many ways very good. There's some difficulties, obviously, but but in the case of, of Bill Clinton being a male spouse of all this, at the time that we were running, especially, and I'll speak for, to the Republicans, they really truly did expect a traditional couple in all that, and it was, it you know, when you're campaigning through the South and through through the Midwest, there you know, these a lot of these people are very, um, uh, they don't come from very large towns. They're loving, grateful farmers, you know, all the people that you meet, but they have more of a traditional view of what a, a president and a first lady, I'll use that term, should be. And so uh, not that I wouldn't have thought he would have been a great second spouse, but I think, <laughs> I think at the particular time, it just, it was not, it was not good timing. Now it's, it, we're looking at a vice president that has a, has a male spouse, a female vice president, and it's wonderful. And everybody's working. I mean, it, it's just, it really represents the American people now, which I'm grateful to say. Well, there was something else you said to me. Um, you said, truly, the only person my husband can trust is me. I don't have anything to lose by telling him not only what I think, but what I think he did wrong. Can you talk to me a little bit about that role again, that that very often the, the spouse and partner is called upon to play? Well, it, yes, and it, it is something that I took, you know, very, obviously I cared very deeply about him and about their, his performance, perhaps we're at a campaign event or, or a, at some other events where he's giving speeches, et cetera. And of course, I want what's best for him and, and for him to do his best. And there were some times it just didn't click. And so you would find a, people surrounding us saying, oh, yeah, you did a great job, John. That was just wonderful. Good for you. And when it really it really wasn't a good, a good speech at all. And so I knew I had to tell him the truth. He relied on me to tell him the truth um, because a lot of times that didn't happen. And he also... Uh, I was probably, I know I was the first one he would ask and always the last one at night about what the day was like, what I thought. And I, we were, in that way, we were great partners because it, we were, we had the same goal in mind and that was getting him elected to whatever he was, whichever office he was running for, but also uh, making sure that his performance and his, his, his message was, was getting out there in a, in a co cohesive and good way. And that was really my role. It, and I and I didn't mind it at all. I liked doing it. You were not really wild about the idea of him running in 2008. The 2000 campaign had taken a horrible toll, especially on your children. You had struggled. You had had a number of struggles, including with substance abuse. You had suffered a stroke at the age of 50 that you were still recovering from. And yet, and you knew that if you had said, this didn't happen, it wouldn't have happened. Exactly. So what made you decide 
to essentially allow John McCain to take another shot at this? Well, you know, it's awfully, it, it's easy for people to say, oh, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to let him do it. It, it just isn't going to happen. Well, that certainly would have happened in our house if I'd, if I'd said no to it. But who am I to say to a man who really had such incredible potential, no, don't, don't run for your dream job. You know, stay, stay back. Don't do that. You don't need to do that. I, I just couldn't, in the end, couldn't say no because he wanted it so much and he wanted to do it. And so I felt that, you know, what, what problems I had with regards to not liking what was going on or whatever it might be. Um, I could get beyond that and and help him and make sure that I could do the best I could to help get him elected. So you come from a very conservative, very Republican background. And yet, you know, the politics of today are so different. And you had to endure the, you know, Donald Trump attacking your husband for his war heroism, you know, attacks that even continued after John McCain was dead. Um, could you talk a little, and, and ultimately you were censured by the Republican party in Arizona. Could you talk a little bit about what Republican politics have become what conservatism has become, and whether you think there is really any way back at this point for the party. Well, right now, I believe that the party is struggling in a in a very deep in a very deep way. There's a there's a great divide within our party, and that there in lies the the differences. And we saw many of those exhibited the day that the, the Capitol was overrun. Um, it, it, people, people are hurting in whatever way they feel, they feel they've been left out in one way or another. And I think what occurred that day was certainly a good example of what was going on. Um, but our party has, has been led astray and our party is, is, is not the party of inclusion, the party of acceptance, the party of Abraham Lincoln, that it was when John and I first started doing this. But I also believe that we can come back from this. This, you know, there's a great pendulum in politics. Uh, we swing one way and then we swing the other way. And, and in, in the case of the Republican Party, I truly believe we can come back from this and will come back from it. But it's going to take some time because we have, when you have someone uh, on a daily basis telling you how rotten this country is and how rotten our party is or how rotten the other party is, it, it's just, Civility has got to be brought back into politics. It has to be working across the aisle, being being people that can agree to disagree on many tough subjects, but, but do it for the good of the country, not for the good of themselves. And that's really where we're at. That's the bottom line of where we need to be today. And I think both parties are struggling with that a little bit. So would Cindy McCain ever run for office? <laughs> no. No, you know something, I have three and a half grandchildren and I work, as you know, in the area of human trafficking and, and human rights uh, abuses and things like that. And I love what I'm doing. I really love it. And so uh, I don't know. I don't think so at all. I'm hoping maybe another McCain will, another junior McCain <laughs> will go in there. 
<laughs> Great. I will I will look forward to the endorsement. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so which 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 of your children do you think is most likely to step up? Oh, you know, I, I don't know. There's many of them. I mean, they're they're all, as you know, we we have the gamut from Megan McCain all the way down to lovely Bridget McCain and two boys in between. So we'll we'll see what happens. They're all they're all very vocal, as you know, and they have their specific issues. And so I love watching them, you know, entertain their various areas. And it's it's fun. As a mom, you, you know you do did a good thing when they're actually stepping up to the plate and trying to be of service. Well, one of the things you also did, um, I think we appear to have lost our connection here for a second, but these things tend to be- There we are. Okay, great. Um, one of the things you did, especially as your children began to get older, was you found causes that animated you, that engaged you overseas. And there. humanitarian- There we are. Causes. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. I would say that's okay. As your children did grow up, I mean, one of the things that really animated you, engaged you, allowed you to have your own identity was was finding causes, often causes, humanitarian causes overseas, in some cases taking you to very, very dangerous places like the Congo. Could you talk a little bit about that? And again, now, of course, you're you're one of the leaders on on the question of human trafficking, which is one of those things that I think most people would rather just turn their eyes away from. Well, you know, all of that kind of work, any kind of work, not just with me, but with many other people uh, that get involved in these issues, uh, they it's it starts from something, some experience or something that occurred in your heart that you saw. And it was no different from me. And so these issues have expanded from my own local neighborhoods and my own community as well to, to issues that I deal with around the world now. And the, the, the beauty of all of that is not so much what I'm doing, but collectively we as Americans are be, beginning to, to not just work on issues together like these, but also uh, make sure that whatever we do will make a difference. And so, so for me, these the places like Congo, places like uh, Somalia, Somaliland, places, you know, uh, Chad, for instance, some other uh, kind of stark places we've been. Um, I, in my opinion, it was necessary for me to go. And more importantly, it was a great learning experience for me as well. And um, it was also, and I had a husband who was a great example of that because because uh, it was, uh, you know, he always believed in getting on the ground and being front and center with things. And so, and I feel the same way. And so that's, that's really what this is all about. It's about making sure that, that, that the issues are, are understood and that, and that I give voice to those who don't have a voice. You also wrote in the book about being almost surprised at the, outpouring of emotion in the country at the death of your husband. You, you write about how, as you are leaving the ranch with his body, there's a, you know, the crowds begin to build. Um, you certainly, the, he, his funeral was more, I think, like a state funeral than I have ever seen for someone who was not, in fact, a former president. Do you think John McCain understood, really understood how the country 
felt about him, would he have been surprised by all of this? I think he would have been surprised. I think he he hoped that he had done his best. As you know, he talked a great deal about trying to lead a good life and be someone who who was was at his best and did his best. But I, I we were all surprised because it was indeed not not just not just a huge event, but but the kinds of things, the little things like like two schools that my children went to, the entire schools turned out and lined the the drive in in Phoenix, uh, things like that that really touched me. And then as we as we you know went larger and came to Washington and then on to the Naval Academy, um, it was all something that I felt he deserved because obviously I thought he was a very great man. Uh, but that that watching the country respond the way I did and and more importantly watching the world. In many cases, uh, John's funeral was a state holiday in many countries. And so that people could watch it uh, on, you know, either online or on television. So, so it, it was a tough, obviously a very tough time, but it was also one that I felt was was deserving of what he had been as a person, a man, and the kind of human being he was. And, and could you talk a little bit about how you are trying to? preserve and protect his legacy, including through the McCain Institute? Well, I, as you know, I'm the chairman of the board of the McCain Institute. And, and prior to John's passing, we had a long, several long talks about the future of the Institute, his legacy, how we combine all of this, how we make this work, what's important, what's not important. And so I had his vision, after he passed, I had his vision of what he wanted and of course what I want. And uh, his legacy is most important to me because I want future generations of, of not just Arizona children, but, but kids and young people from around the world to know who this man was and that his ideals and his living by the code of conduct made him, gave him the ability to make tough decisions. You know, all, not all good decisions are easy decisions. Or they can be very hard. And so, so I, my, my job in all of this is to make sure that continues and that we, we, we especially our next generation leader, leaders program that really works on with young people from around the world uh, on, on leadership values and the, the goodness that comes from being a good and honest leader and so many other things. I mean, his, his legacy obviously is important to the family as well. And so, we, we all work together, we all have a voice in it, we all have, have, uh, have had our discussions about it as well. And, um, you know, my only wish is that he were here instead of me doing this. Well, uh, from according to the reports of the next time we speak, I will be referring to you as Madam Ambassador. Uh, <laughs> as, at least the reports are that you are going to be named um, an ambassador, the first Republican named to a Senate-confirmed position by the Biden administration as ambassador in Europe to the UN food program. Uh, you care to talk about what you want to do in that job? Well, really, I can't talk about it yet because, because uh, I haven't heard anything. So... Uh, more importantly, what I look forward to is having Republicans in the administration, as President Biden had said he would do, 
uh, that's very important because he agreed and told all of us that he would work across the island, have an inclusive government. And that's really what I'm most excited about is seeing uh, our voices, as well as, of course, our Democratic partners' voices in all of this. Uh, so I, I look forward to being of service in any way I can be. I'm, I'm someone who you know, never thought I would be in this position. And, and I look forward to just being of service to a country that, uh, that has, have ser has served me so well. So do you believe that President Biden has thus far, he's come under some criticism that he hasn't really lived up to his promises to be bipartisan. He passed his first big piece of legislation, this $1.9 trillion rescue bill with no Republican votes. How, how well do you think he's doing on his pledge to be bipartisan? Well, let's be clear, it's only been 100 days. So, so, but, but with that said, I mean, I don't agree with, with President Biden on everything. I won't. I'm a Republican. But what I do miss and I think we'll have with this president is someone who will talk to us, again, sit down, listen to people, make the best decisions he can make or Congress can make together for the good of the country. And that's really why I supported him and why I wanted uh, someone who would bring the kind of compassion and empathy and decency and fair play and civility back into the government. And that's really, that's really what I was all about in, in endorsing him and being a part of this, this campaign. Uh, and it was a great honor for me to do so. Well, in, in the little bit of time we have left, um, as, as we look back on your life, um, uh, very young woman who thought she was marrying a naval officer. Sure, I mean, right. <laughs> who, could, who could possibly have <laughs> predicted where this was going to take you? I know. We've talked, oh, those dress white. <laughs> right. We've talked a lot about John McCain's legacy, a legacy that the two of you really built over nearly 40 years of marriage. What would you like Cindy McCain's legacy to be? Well, I would hope that in the end, you know, when it's all said and done, that I would re be remembered as someone who, who tried to make a difference. Um, it's, it's not about, for me, it's not about any big lofty kind of thing. It's really just that I, that I really tried to make a difference. And that's important to me because that's why you do these things. That's why I do them is, is so that we can make a difference and give a voice to the voiceless and help people who are, who are so desperately in need of help, uh, no matter what area it is. And so I, that's is the best and most simple way I can put it. Well, thank you so much, Mrs. McCain, and for being with us today. Thank you so much for writing this book, which I think is just such an important book, especially for, for women to read because I think so many people are going to see themselves in this book. Thank you. I hope that, I hope everyone reads it. It's a fun read and I think I'm, uh, I've been very candid and I, and I hope everyone uh, enjoys that. Thank you. And thank you as well for being with us today on Washington Post Live. Uh, you can join my colleague, David Ignatius, at 2 p.m. today for an interview with Scott Kirby, the CEO of United Airlines. And tomorrow, 
And Friday, General Jay Raymond, the Chief of Operations for Space Force. Uh, and you can always come to WashingtonPostLive.com to see all the many fascinating events that we have going on all the time. So see you next time. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.